everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're going to be diving deep into Daft Punk. I'm just going to say this right off the gate. There are some French words in here. There's some French names in here, okay? I'm probably going to pronounce them really, really wrong, and that's okay. <laughs> I'm just saying that right now. Um, so we're continuing on with kind of the electro theme, and I wanted to talk about Daft Punk because... As I think we all know, they disbanded recently, and they only made four albums. And in the span of that time, I think they really solidified themselves in the in that new age of kind of disco music that's been popular lately in the last couple of years. And they have made a lot of waves internationally, and I think it would just make a lot of sense if I were to just go and talk about Daft Punk following The Prodigy. We're still over in Europe. <laughs> the Prodigy was in the UK. Now we're shifting a little bit into France. Without further ado, let's get started with the formation of Daft Punk. So this is where the French names are going to fuck me up, but bear with me here. So Daft Punk is a duo and they are friends from school. So the duo is made up of Guy Manuel de Omem Cristo and Thomas Bengalter. Nope. That's so not how you say that. Um, I'm just going to call them Thomas and Guy Manuel, okay? Make it easy for everybody here. So the two met while they were attending secondary school in Paris in 1987, and they became best friends. And they started to record demos with a couple of other friends from school at the time. In 1992, they formed a band called Darlin with Thomas on bass and Guy Manuel on guitar, and they had drummer and second guitarist Laurent Bronkowitz. They named themselves Darlin after the Beach Boys song Darlin, which they covered, and they made alongside an original song as well. So these were kind of the songs that they were coming out with on their little demo tape. These songs were put on a multi-artist EP under Duophonic Record, which is a London-based label, and Duophonic loved them so much that they invited Darlin to play gigs in the UK, which was really cool. Thomas recalled that the rock sound that they were making was very short-lived. They only made four songs and they performed only twice, so Darlin really didn't last too long and they got a negative review in Melody Maker, which is a UK music publication, and this article called Darlin Daft Punky Trash. And they liked the sound of that name so much that that's where they got the inspiration to call themselves Daft Punk, which I love. I love how they turn a negative into a positive that benefits them. Like, that's that's just really, really cool. So, needless to say, Darlin didn't last too long, and Laurent went to play with friends in the French indie pop band Phoenix. I'm sure all of you have actually heard of Phoenix. They've done that song, Listomania. They've done a couple of other ones. But yeah, that's that's him. He was in Darlin' and then he went to Phoenix after that. So Guy and Thomas decided to stick together and this is where they called themselves Daft Punk. And they started experimenting with drum machines and with synthesizers and with all those other great awesome things. So this is where Daft Punk started. We are jumping right into their debut album called Homework. In September of 93, Daft Punk went to a rave show in Euro Disney where they met Stuart McMillan, who was part of a Scottish 
producer DJ duo kind of uh, band from Scotland. And Stewart co-founded Soma Quality Recordings, which was kind of an indie record label at the time. The three of them got to talking. They handed Stewart a demo tape, and Stewart was really, really impressed with what he had heard. This demo tape was really the foundation on which they created their single called The New Wave. The New Wave and this kind of demo tape, it was a limited release, and it released on April 11th, 94. So after this release of their new singles, the boys went back into the studio in May 95, and they started recording a new song called Defunk. I freaking love this tune, and of course, it's going to be on homework. This is really interesting how they kind of formulated not only on homework how they were going to create an album, but just like their ethos behind how they created all of their albums. So Defunk, they were working on that. They initially released this as a single, and it became their first commercial success. And with their newfound popularity, they were looking for a manager. They eventually settled on producer and DJ Pedro Winter, who would frequently promote the band at his hype nightclubs. And soon enough, Daft Punk was signed to Virgin Records in September of 1996. And this is what I have learned about Daft Punk, and this is one of the things that I really, really um, love about them a lot. To make sure that Daft Punk didn't lose creative control in any stage at all, in the recording process, in the promotion process, in any process during the making of music, they wanted to make sure that they had full creative control. And in order to keep that control, the band formed a deal with Virgin Records, of which they would license out their own music to Virgin through the band's own production company that they created called Daft Tracks. And so this is where it all comes into play with how they're really, really thinking big here. And they started this from the get-go where they wanted to make sure that they were the ones that had full creative freedom on what they wanted to do, how their music would be put out into the world. They didn't let the big-time record companies keep them in a box and force them to stick to certain kind of ways of how to come out with their music or influence them in any way. They wanted to make sure as the band that they did whatever they wanted to do. I have not seen a band really take full creative control like that. That's like quite unheard of, to be honest. And I like that. I don't know. I like that about them. So... From this point on until 1997, they performed various live shows without their well-known costumes at first. In 1996, they performed at their first American show in Wisconsin. Weird. <laughs> Why Wisconsin for their first American show? That's kind of really weird, but okay, Wisconsin, sure. So during this time in the mid to late 90s, they pretty much were just recording some singles. They were just going around performing various live shows. And they also performed their own DJ sets in clubs using their own vinyl from their personal collections. So that's pretty cool. They were DJing and they were doing all this other stuff on the side. They were just trying to keep busy and do whatever they wanted to do alongside, again, making the singles for what was going to be homework. They recorded the album at their own studio called Daft House in Paris. What's important to know about Homework is they recorded the tracks that were initially just going to be 
released as singles and they didn't have a plan or a theme for this album at all. They initially weren't even considering an album. They just were making these songs and then thinking that they were just going to release them all as singles. But they noticed that they had a lot of good material and they thought, well, why not just kind of figure out a way to put them on an album? So what they tried to do, and, and this is why homework kind of sounds a bit like the songs don't fully belong together. They tried to make the songs fit a bit better by rearranging them in such a way that it made them sound like they fit together. And even though it really didn't, they tried their best to make it fit. Again, obviously we know it's called Homework, the album, and the name Homework was chosen because they made it all at home, cheaply and quickly, just kind of throwing things together. They were just trying to create something really, really cool. So the artwork for the album was totally conceptualized by Daft Punk themselves. Guy Manuel actually created the signature Daft Punk wordmark that is seen on Three of the albums, not Random Access Memories, but three of the albums have that Daft Punk font on it. He created that. And it's pretty interesting that he came up with that himself. Um, and to come up with the artwork for the inner sleeve, they rearranged various items on a table that would represent a title track on the album. And a lot of the artwork in the photo represented the band's influences as well. Homework was released on January 20th, 1997, and it went to number three in the French charts, number eight in the UK, and number five in the US. So it did really well for themselves. Like for their first album, that is really, really good. So the singles for this album were Alive, Defunk, Burnin', and Around the World, and it made a huge impact on French house music and global dance culture around the world in particular, I think is one of their most famous singles from this album in particular. Um, the music video for it that they did as well was really, really popular. It got played on MTV all the time. Um, and what I thought was also interesting was the band specifically wanted the album to be released mostly on vinyl and not on CD. So obviously this was 1997 and to have an album come out on CD was the most popular format, the most popular. You had cassette tape and you still had vinyl, but CD was the one that was really pushed first. So it was a bit interesting and a bit different that they pushed for vinyl mostly and barely any CD copies. So because they asked for this specifically, they only made 50,000 copies of CDs and yeah. <laughs> they were like, no, we're done with CDs. But obviously, of course, people still want them. They just didn't come out with a lot of copies of them. In February, the UK magazine Music published Daft Punk on the cover of their magazine, saying that Homework was one of the most hyped debut albums in a long time. And according to critics, the album revived house music and it notably left the Eurodance craze that was really big at the time. Don't remind me of that Eurodance craze in the late 90s. Oh my god. I'm not gonna go there because it brings back a lot of cringe-worthy memories. But yeah, I if you were there, you had to be there for that Eurodance craze. Oh my goodness. So to promote the album, they created a number of music videos for some of the singles. Like I said, Around the World was one of the most famous 
music videos for these singles on this album. And some of the directors for these music videos included Spike Jones, Michael Gondry, and Roman Coppola, who is the son of Francis Ford Coppola. So that's really interesting. So these collections of music videos that were made for this album was released in 1999 as Daft Punk, a story about dogs, androids, firemen, and tomatoes. It was kind of like a a mini short film, if you will. That's kind of what the concept was for that. So there you go. That is homework all set and done. Now we're going to get on to their second album, Discovery. And I think this one might be my favorite album of theirs. If I had to pick one of the four, I think Discovery might be it for me. So Daft Punk started working on Discovery from 1998 to 2000. After homework, it sparked a lot of copycats trying to mimic what they do. And that isn't what they wanted at all. They didn't want copycats trying to just cherry pick their music and have it be their own. Kind of like how The Prodigy came out with Charlie and a lot of copycats came from that. So similarly, they took a bit of a different direction when it came to Discovery. They wanted to make sure that Discovery set them apart from all these copycats and from all these people, so they moved in a bit of a different direction musically. They used some different samplers and some synths and a couple of other equipment like vocoders and a MIDI synthesizer. So they're known for obviously using a lot of these different instruments that can produce that kind of disco, electro, techno, kind of robotic sound, and that's what they're known for. So they were using a bit of a different um, mixture of equipment for this album. The song One More Time was the first tune that they completed for the album in 1998, but it was shelved until its release in 2000. And then after they recorded the song Too Long, they realized that they didn't want another album of 14 house tracks. They just weren't all about doing that again. So they switched it up yet again in this format. And they used a lot of different styles on this album. So they weren't just sticking to specifically the house sound. They were interested in coming up with a wider variety of styles and sounds and genres like they weren't afraid to kind of mix around here and experiment. Discovery had a few musical contributions, one notably from a musician called DJ Sneak and he was asked to be brought onto the album so he came on there. He ended up writing the lyrics to their song Digital Love and he helped on the song's production as well. Digital Love, I think, is one of my favorite tunes on this album as well. It is so good. So Daft Punk, on retrospect, they consider this album a bit of a concept album. It features themes of childhood memories and incorporates a lot of their love for movies. They said that the album deals with the specific time period of their childhood between 1975 and 1985 and the experiences that they had at that time. Discovery was designed to have a lighthearted, playful, and open-minded vibe towards listening to music. Thomas described it as the same feeling you have when you're a child and you don't judge or analyze anything. You just are the way that you are and you're very open-minded to a lot of different things around you. And that is 
the emotion that Daft Punk wanted to incite in you when you listen to this album specifically. And I think they pretty much nailed it right on the head there. The raw and more rocking sound of homework was changed for the goal on Discovery, where they wanted Discovery to be more about exploring song structures and new musical forms. They said that the inspiration for this change in sound came from the Aphex Twin song Window Licker. So there you go. I listened to that tune and whew, it was good, but then it changed to a different kind of interesting psychedelic thing in the middle and I was like, whoa. Am I tripping? What's going on here? So yeah, but they took inspiration from that Aphex Twin song in particular. Um, They were just inspired to kind of go wherever they wanted to go. They weren't um, limiting themselves creatively. As is with every Daft Punk song and every Daft Punk album, uh, sampling was heavy on this album in particular. Instead of just creating a song from a basic sample, They actually worked with the sample by writing and performing additional parts for it. So this is just a couple of examples of stuff that they would sample for their songs. They sampled George Duke's I Love You More on Digital Love. Edwin Birdsong's Cola Bottle Baby was used in Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. The Imperials, Can You Imagine, is used for Crescendals or Crescendals. Barry Manilow's Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed was used in Superheroes. And although this sample was uncredited, it is official. Um, One More Time uses the song Eddie John's More Spell on You. So those are just a few examples of sampling. Similarly, in vain though to homework, the band originally was going to release the songs as singles. They weren't initially going to put together an album. But obviously that was scrapped and they decided that an album would be better suited. So One More Time was released as a single in 2000 and it was followed by Aerodynamic, Digital Love, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, Something About Us, and Face to Face. The music videos for Discovery was sparked from the idea of creating a live action film. Kind of like where each song was being used on the film. It's kind of like, I don't really know how best to describe it. Basically, they wanted to create a feature-length film, kind of like one big giant music video before the whole album. I hope that made sense. So instead, though, of creating a live-action film, they veer towards coming out with an anime production. And what's interesting was they cited that both Guy Manuel and Thomas were both big anime fans as children. And so this is very suiting considering Discovery was all about um, exploring those childhood memories. And so that that really makes sense in hindsight. But um, the production and the concept for this was to blend sci-fi with entertainment industry culture. So with that kind of idea in mind, they took this concept to Tokyo in hopes that they could create this project with their childhood hero, Leji Matsumoto, who created the anime Captain Hook that Guy Manuel and Thomas both loved as children. And Matsumoto created a lot of other animes and manga as well in Japan. So he is a really big name. And so they took it right to him directly. Uh, Matsumoto joined the team with a few of his colleagues in the anime industry to work on this production, and it began in October 2000, and it finished in April 2003. 
The end result was the anime film called Interstellar 5555, and this was kind of like how I explained it before. This was a full-length anime film using the entirety of the Discovery album. So that's really, really unique as well. I don't think I've seen any other band kind of attempt something like this or do something like this either. So they were just coming out with these new, kind of really invigorating. Concept ideas and just implementing them, like they just didn't really give a shit. They were doing whatever they wanted to do, and I have to give it to them for that one. So, Discovery was around the time that Thomas and Guy Manuel adopted the famous robot outfits and that kind of robotic persona. This change was noted in a press interview when they told them that. They were working on Discovery on September 9th, 1999, and their sampler had exploded. Wow, crazy! And they had、uh, to undergo reconstructive surgery. And upon waking up, they realized that they had become robots. And so that's the story they told everybody. That's the reason for their change. Of course, you want to be a bit dramatic as Daft Punk, and that's what they say. But obviously. There is more of a down-to-earth, more、um, not so outlandish reason for this whole thing as well. It's basically just they wanted to keep themselves as, in terms of going forward, as anonymous in their personas and who they were as possible. They really valued anonymity in some sense, and so that's why they adopted that robot persona. The robot helmets were made by Paul Han of Daft Arts, which is another kind of production by Daft Punk, and French directors Alex and Martin, and engineering from special effects makeup designer Tony Gardiner. What's really strange was wigs were actually originally attached to the helmets, but the band removed the wigs before they were about to go on stage for the first time wearing these costumes. They said that it was kind of hard to breathe, but they eventually got used to it. Eventually, <laughs> you think that they would put ventilators in these helmets in the first time, the first place, but they were eventually fitted with ventilators so that they could actually breathe because that's important. You know what I mean? Breathing is really important. Thomas said that Daft Punk wanted to focus on their music, and that's where they wanted that focus to be. They didn't want it to be on who Daft Punk was. What they looked like, they wanted to be anonymous, and the use of the masks allowed them to control their image while retaining that anonymity and protecting their personal lives. They used the robot outfits to merge these characteristics of humans and machines. Thomas also said that the costumes were initially the result of shyness, but he says that it then became exciting from the audience's point of view. It's the idea of being an average guy with some kind of superpower. He describes it also as an advanced version of glam, where it's definitely not you. It is believed, actually, that the mystery of Daft Punk's identity and their elaborate disguises have added to their popularity. Their costumes have kind of been compared to Kiss's makeup and the leather jacket worn by Iggy Pop. There is 100% no one else in the game except for maybe Marshmallow. That uses masks or helmets to disguise their persona. That at least I can think of right now. Yeah, they were the innovators of this for sure. So Discovery was released on March twelfth, two thousand and one. The album was a major success, and all of the singles were even more popular with fans and critics as compared to Homework. 
In December of 2003, they released their first remix album called Daft Club, where they feature remixes of most of their Discovery songs and one song from Homework was also remixed. And Discovery went two times platinum, selling over 2 million copies in Europe and around the world. Around the world. I didn't mean to put that in there. Pun kind of intended, I guess. <laughs> yeah, pun intended. We'll say that I meant to say that. Um, so that's Discovery. I mean, another great album by them. Again, I think it's my favorite out of all the three. But now we're going to get into Human After All, which is their third album, which is their more kind of um, meh album. I think it's universally kind of their not so great album in their discography. It's okay. But we are going to jump into that right now. So Human After All released in March 2005. It was given really mixed reviews by both critics and fans, even though it wasn't a complete disaster of an album. It gained decent, like, okay reviews. I think it was just okay. I think the consensus was it was just all right. It wasn't anything special. The main criticisms of the album was that it was too dark and it felt kind of repetitive. So it's like, all right, fair enough. The singles were Robot Rock, Technologic, Human After All, and Prime Time of Your Life. And I want to give a little bit of a tangent to Technologic because I think this is the most popular song from this album and one of their most popular tunes. I'm not going to sing it, but you know how it goes. It's that whole kind of like bop it. You know what I mean? How the boppets are like, twist it, bop it, pull it. It's like the same thing pretty much the whole entire song. This song was featured in a lot of commercials, TV shows, and video games, and it also became sort of a meme on YouTube back in the day. I went on YouTube last night, and just to kind of reaffirm this to myself to make sure I wasn't totally losing it, I wanted to find the original video. Basically, a lot of people on YouTube back when this came out around 2006 or 2007, they were coming out with their own videos of like, they were writing the words on their hands and on their bodies, and they were like doing it to the song, if you know what I mean. And I found some, yeah, from like 2007. I was like, oh my god, I remember watching these in school. Like, oh my god, it's just, it, I don't know. It's really funny how those kind of things just get imprinted in your brain and you just latch it onto a song or a band or an album. So for me, whenever I hear Technologic, I just remember those kind of video memes from back in the day. Really, really cool. Really cool. So the song actually went to number one, in the UK singles charts, and Technologic was sampled by Buster Rhymes for his song Touch It. And a remix of this song, the line from Technologic that was used in his song was sung by Missy Elliott. It's their most popular tune. What more can I say? It's kind of annoying and repetitive, but yeah, it was really popular. Rant about Technologic, over. On May 21st, 2005, the duo came out with a feature-length film called Electroma. I have not heard about this at all until I started researching. I, I did not know that they came out with a feature-length film. Like, a live-action feature-length film. The film doesn't have any of Daft Punk's music in it, but the two act as directors and co-writers of the movie. The story is basically about two robot bandmates on their quest to become human. So it's pretty much kind of about them, but like almost reversed, if you know what I mean. It's considered an avant-garde sci-fi movie. Um, I haven't seen it. Again, I wasn't even aware of its presence until I started researching this episode. But if you are avid Daft Punk fans, then you know what I'm talking about or you've seen it before. There you go. So some of the ideas for this film 
came up from making music videos for Human After All. They wanted to expand upon the music videos. Instead of just keeping on creating music videos, they created the concept of just making a feature-length film, and so that's what they did. It was totally unplanned, but they didn't limit themselves with their creativity, as is, I think, the running theme with Daft Punk. Um, they just did whatever the hell they wanted to do. But it was shot on 35mm Kodak film, and Thomas read over 200 issues of American Cinematographer to prepare for filming the movie. He literally said, I'm going to sit down <laughs> and read these magazines, and then I can make a film. Oh my god, that's really funny. He didn't actually say that. I'm saying that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, let me just sit down and read 200 issues of American Cinematographer, and then let me make a film. I wonder how it turned out, to be honest. How I wonder how his research turned out. Is the film any good? Have you guys seen Electroma? What do you guys think, if you have seen it? So from 2006 to 2007, they held a world tour for their Alive 2006-2007 tour. It is, I think, their most popular tour that they've ever done. They are known for this tour. It's like a worldwide tour. It's, it was massive. So on these tours, they performed a mega mix of their music in front of a large LED pyramid on stage. And it's been cited as being a big influence on bringing dance music to a wider audience, especially in North America. I saw that one music critic likened the Alive 2006-2007 tour to the Beatles' Ed Sullivan Show performance in terms of how massively inspirational... Is that the word I want to use? Inspirational? Influential. That's the word. <laughs> and how massively influential that tour was for Daft Punk and for house music and for dance music, like what they did for the genre. They pushed it forward, especially in North America at that time. So that's kind of one of the things that they are most well known for is that Alive tour. And in 2009, the duo won Grammy Awards for Alive 2007, which is their second live album. And they won a Grammy Award for Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. So they are really coming out here. They are doing the most and I am loving it. So now we're going to get into a little bit of Tron Legacy and how they created the soundtrack for Tron Legacy, the film. So in 2009, San Diego Comic-Con, it was announced that the band had worked on the soundtrack for Tron Legacy, the movie. Their score was arranged and orchestrated by Joseph Trapanese. They worked with him for two years from pre-production stages all the way until the very end. The score features an 85-piece orchestra that was recorded in London, England. The director of the film wanted the music for the movie to be electronic combined with orchestral pieces. So I will be totally honest here, I have not seen Tron Legacy, but I have heard some of the songs on the soundtrack. I think the song End of Line or End of the Line was one of the songs that I heard and I really loved that one. That is 100% Daft Punk. And so I think it's really interesting that they wanted to work with Daft Punk and that Daft Punk agreed to do it. I mean, why would they not do it? I think it makes total sense. Like this totally fits with the theme of who Daft Punk are as a group. So it makes perfect sense to me that this came together for them. 
The band actually also made a cameo appearance as DJs in the Tron virtual world in the film. So if you've seen Tron Legacy, you will definitely see them as cameo appearances of themselves as DJs. So keep an eye out for that. And if you haven't seen the film, still keep an eye out for it and find that cool little Easter egg there. But the soundtrack for Tron Legacy was released on December 6, 2010. A music video for the song Derezd premiered on MTV that was released on the same day as the soundtrack. And in 2011, Walt Disney Records made a remixed album called Tron Legacy Reconfigured. Of course they do. Disney has to get their grubby hands on everything and just like come out with all this stuff. But that was pretty much the little short story about Tron Legacy. The director for Tron Legacy wanted to really work with Daft Punk and he thought that they would be the perfect band to come together and collaborate with and the fact that he wanted to keep it electronic but blend in elements of orchestra and orchestral pieces was really quite interesting and this was one of the big influences that Daft Punk was to take away from this Tron Legacy experience and put it into their last album, Random Access Memories which I am going to talk about right now. And there's a lot of good information in this one. It's their most, I think this is their most popular album, 100%. Like the numbers show it, it tops really high on the charts. Everyone loves it. And um, unfortunately, this would be their last album, but we weren't to know that, right? Looking back, we know it's their last one, but I'm going to dive deep into Random Access Memories. So they began working on Random Access Memories between 2008 and 2012. They ended up leaving Virgin Records for Sony Music Entertainment via Columbia Records. And the album featured a ton, like a ton of guest musician appearances. Notably, Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. And he's also the singer of his side project, The Voids. He was on this album. Pharrell worked on the songs Get Lucky and Lose Yourself to Dance, and Panda Bear from Animal Collective work on Do It Right. So they had a couple of guest appearances on this album. This album was totally different in that they were getting tired of sampling and they were getting tired of looping, and they wanted to do something completely different this time, like they were 180-ing everything. They said that doing the Tron Legacy soundtrack was a very humbling experience. And from that point on, they wanted to work with real musicians and put the samplers on the back burner. They recorded the album in secret at a lot of different studios, actually. They recorded at three studios in California, one in New York, and one in Paris. So they were all over the place with this album. They actually brought back keyboardist and arranger Chris Castwell, who worked with them on the Tron album. He helped them shape the more kind of open and dynamic sound of Random Access Memories in the ways that Daft Punk had wanted. So again, like them doing Tron Legacy was really inspirational to them and it helped them kind of open their mind a bit more to how they wanted Random Access Memories to be done. So without them having done Tron Legacy, would we have this album as it was in the way that it was produced and how it came out? I don't know. It's a good question to ask. So what's actually really interesting about this album is that they actually recorded a full orchestral band for each song on the album, but only a few of those actual orchestral backing tracks were used on the album. 
But again, how would they have ever gotten the idea to use an orchestra on this album if it wasn't from Tron Legacy? I'm telling you, it expanded their minds so much more. And the use of electronics was also not used as much on this album. They only used drum machines, a modular synthesizer, and vintage vocorders for their robotic voice, and that was really all that they used. Even though they were aware that the use of using digital tools would limit their creativity, they knew that the album couldn't fully be made without the use of these digital tools in some capacity. These recording sessions that they did for Random Access Memories were actually recorded both on Ampex reels and on Pro Tools. And what was really fascinating was Daft Punk and their sound engineer would listen to the tracks recorded on both analog and digital to decide which one really sounded better. And then when they decided which one was better, they took the elements from whichever one they liked and they edited that version with Pro Tools kind of in a similar way in which they would work with samples in the past. Thomas described the title of the album as a reference to Daft Punk's interest in the past, referencing both random access memory technology and the human experience. He said that they were drawing a parallel between the brain and the hard drive. Random Access Memories has been cited as predominantly a disco album, and the duo admitted that the album paid homage to Michael Jackson, The Cars, and Steely Dan. Yeah, Steely Dan, interestingly enough. They also looked to albums like Rumors by Fleetwood Mac and Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd as inspirations. They initially created the album without a clear idea of what the album was going to be about. The album only really gained its structure in the four months leading up to the end of production. So I have a couple of little bits and pieces and little facts about a couple of the songs on this album that I thought I would mention. So Instant Crush is one tune on the album, and this was based on an idea that the duo presented to Julian Casablancas. And maybe you would think to yourself, if you don't know Julian Casablancas, that that would be a really weird move to go ask him because Julian is predominantly known for his indie rock kind of stuff and Daft Punk does not go there. But if you know Julian, you know that he's come out with his own solo work that is predominantly electronic based. Um, he's very into the 80s kind of synth, new wavy kind of uh, synth pop stuff, if you will. And he has his own side project called The Voids, in which you can really hear that inspiration on there. So to me, it makes perfect sense that they would ask him because Julian really is kind of spearheading a lot of this 80s um, retro synth wavy new kind of elements being brought back into music. And so they asked him if they would do it. And he was excited about the song and he gave his vocals to the song. And he was also in the music video for it as well. Basically. I just think this song is a great song, and Julian, I think, was the perfect choice for this tune. I think they did a great job on it. So Lose Yourself to Dance, right? This song came about as a desire to create dance music with live drummers. Niall Rogers of the 70s disco band Chic appeared on this song, and Niall Rogers also helps out a lot with this album as a session musician. And Lose Yourself to Dance, Pharrell sang on this tune as well. He also sang on Get Lucky, and the title wasn't just about getting lucky in a sexual way, but they wanted to make sure that people knew that this was also about the potential luck of finding chemistry with another person. 
It was said that when Pharrell first heard the idea for the song, he said that it evoked the image of a peachy colored sunrise on an exotic island. And that's a really beautiful imagery. I actually really like that. So like I mentioned before, Random Access Memories is the first Daft Punk album to not feature the band's wordmark as their cover. The font on this album was actually inspired by the Thriller album, and the helmets on the cover became a reoccurring symbol throughout the promotional campaign. So I think a connecting point between all the album covers is that it was simple. It's simplistic and minimalistic, and that's what they were really going for. I can't really say how could they not use their traditional wordmark on this album cover. I mean, I think the album cover speaks really well for itself. I think sometimes less is more, and they did a really good job on this cover too. So the promotion for this album was done in a very kind of vintage way of how artists used to promote their albums with advertisement encompassing the central theme of the album. So Daft Punk released two short TV commercials in reference to the album, and they created a third one that was played on the first night of Coachella 2013. And they also put up billboards promoting the album too. So again, they were just really on board with using kind of more vintage old school ways of promoting the album and with coming out with the album and with producing it, basically everything and all that. Again, the analog versus digital new age, it all kind of comes together on this album as a theme and they stuck well to the theme, in my opinion. So on April 19th, 2013, Get Lucky was released as a single because it was actually leaked a few days prior. So it was leaked and they thought, all right, well, we have to release it now. So that's why it came out a little bit early than planned. But the album was released on May 17th, 2013. Critics and fans alike were extremely positive about this album. It was widely acclaimed and it's been described as Daft Punk's best album of their entire career. The song Get Lucky became the most streamed song in the history of Spotify when it came out. Like, wow. Can you imagine that? It's the most streamed song in the history of Spotify. It's, it's a great tune. But yeah, it became the most popular streamed song in the history of Spotify. And the album landed at number one on pretty much every single chart across the world. And they won a crap ton of Grammy Awards for this album at the 2014 Grammy Awards. They won five in total. Get Lucky won awards for Record of the Year, Best Pop Duo Group Performance, and then the album itself won awards for Album of the Year, Best Dance Electronica Album, and Best Engineered Album Non-Classical. So they took home all of the awards. I think I remember that night, actually. I think there's that famous image of the two of them holding like all five of their awards. It's like, well, we took all the awards home with us. So we're going back to Paris. Peace out, everybody. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, well-deserved. They really, really um, did the most on this album. And I think now it still holds the test of time. I mean, it's only been a few years since it's been out, but I think it's one of the most influential dance, like new disco, new age disco album of modern times, I would think. I think a lot of people put this album in very high regard, and I think as it should. Like Daft Punk is one of the most popular bands, duos, acts that have come out in the recent times. And them not wanting to be stifled by the big record companies and the big wigs in 
the music industry, they did it pretty much all on their own through their hard work and passion for music and coming together. And we have to give it up for them. But unfortunately, we know where this ends. Before that, though, in 2016, Daft Punk appeared on the single Starboy and I Feel It Coming from The Weeknd. And Starboy topped the charts, becoming Daft Punk's only U.S. number one song. And it wasn't even their tune. (laughs) They just appeared on it and they helped with the song. But wow. And I Feel It Coming reached number four on the U.S. singles charts too. So following these two singles and following Random Access Memories over the years, Thomas and Guy Manuel pretty much have just been working as solo producers on a number of different projects. Solo meaning they're not working together, they're working separately on different kind of production uh, musical projects. That's kind of what they've just been doing as of these recent years. On February 22nd, 2021, Daft Punk released a YouTube video entitled Epilogue, and it featured scenes from their Electroma film. And a title card in the video read 1993 to 2021, while a part of Daft Punk's Touch song plays, and people were really confused. I vaguely remember this, to be honest. I think people, I think the internet was like broken genuinely. I think people everywhere was like, what's going on? What's happening? Like, is Daft Punk ending? Like, what's going on here? A lot of confusion, pretty much. But later that day, the band's long-term publicist confirms that yes, Daft Punk was no more. They had officially disbanded. There was no reason given, but it was later said pretty much, that they just were focusing more on their solo producing career, but that doesn't mean that that's the end of the two of them working together, but just Daft Punk is no more. And what's crazy, this is bonkers to me, but it makes sense, but like the numbers is just bonkers. The breakup led to a surge of album sales and digital online purchases. It increased by 2,650% just because of this breakup. Wow. Um, (laughs) I don't know how that percentage is even possible. Where did they get that from? 2,650% of album sales increased because of their breakup. Wow. Now that has me wondering, like, when the Beatles broke up, what were their album sales? Like, how much did that increase by percentage-wise? That's so crazy to me. Wow. But that, in short, is the end of Daft Punk as we know it, at least for now. Who knows? Who knows what uh, the universe has in store for them in the future? What stuff they're going to be producing as solo producers in the music industry? Who really knows? We don't know. They might come back together at some point, maybe in a different form. I really don't know. But Daft Punk is over, and that is the end of their story. I have to say, the big takeaway that I learned from Daft Punk and in researching Daft Punk is that they were true to who they were through and through from the very beginning, from day one, and from the very last day. They did it all their way. They did not want to be in a box put in a label right? They didn't want labels. They didn't want certain things that I think was the norm for a lot of people. 
in the music industry. They wanted total creative freedom. They wanted to make sure the albums and the music they put out with was true to who they were, and they would not settle for anything less. And they were the sole contributors of the music. They didn't let the label define them. They didn't let the label stifle them in any way. They kept to being free as much as possible, and I have to totally give it to them for that. I have a lot of respect for them, and um, their music is great. They're absolutely amazing, and I hope you guys have learned something that you didn't know before. Have an awesome day, and I will see you guys next Wednesday with a new episode of On The Mix. Have a great day. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.